So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take those out. And we are going to be in Acts chapter 18 this morning. And we'll get there uh, in a minute or two. If you have your core guide, you can go ahead and take that out as well. There's a place on the front to jot down notes that you might want to talk with your core group about. How many of you have ever gone camping before? Like real camping, like in a tent camping? Yes, tent. Well, we good. We have a bunch of tent campers here. Hardy folks we are. That's awesome. And this is kind of maybe a, not a great question to ask, but because of the climate we live in, how many of you have ever camped in a tent in the rain? Yes. Can be quite the challenge, correct? This week I was thinking about the first tent that Lisa and I ever owned together. We were going on a camping trip, and we were meeting up with uh, her family, and we were uh, poor at the time, and we needed a cheap shelter. So I don't remember what store it was back there, a Walmart kind of a store, I think. And we went to the camping department there, and we found a cheap tent. And it was advertised as a, a seven-foot, two-person tent. And we're thinking, hey, that works. You know, it was, it was in our price range, so we made the purchase. We go on this camping adventure, and we take it out of the box, and we set it up. And, and literally, it would fit on this little thrust right here, the seven-foot advertisement was diagonal, (laughs) which means it was five foot by five foot. Both of us are taller than five foot. And so therefore, we could not lay down, um, you know, the way you're supposed to. And we had to kind of go at an angle like this. And it was the most cramping, cramped tenting experience I can ever remember. And it was, it was not only was it five by five, but it was only like this tall. And so it was really hard even to sit up in and even maneuver around. But we're there. We have it set up. And after being the laughing stock of the camping community, it started to rain. You can imagine that a tent with that description doesn't have much of a rain fly on it. And it was just this flimsy piece of nylon that just kind of draped over the edges. It was not one that had, you know, went out and provided any kind of shelter at all. But never fear, for her father was there. And he being a contractor, he always came prepared with things like tarps. And he had the largest tarp I think that I've ever seen in my life. And he pulls it out of the back of his truck. And so he says, why don't we put a tarp over your tent? And this tarp literally covered almost our entire campsite. So he insisted, and, and we tied it off, off to the trees. And we, our, our uh, camping spot was kind of in the middle of the other family spots. And so we were able to extend our tent to our whole campsite. So 
Everybody else could bring their chairs and sit underneath the tarp. We had the picnic table under there. So we were like camping central with a little dwelling hut right there in the middle. So on the Jewish calendar, uh, tonight starts the beginning of what's the third high festival in the Jewish calendar is called the, the Festival of Tabernacles. And one of the things that happens during the Festival of Tabernacles is God had instructed the people after the harvest to bring offerings to him and, and gather as the people. It's a celebration of uh, joy. It's a celebration in community, community. But one of the things that they did at the festival, festival of the Tabernacles was they gathered the community and they constructed little makeshift huts called sukkah. Or maybe you can imagine our little tent like this. And they would leave their dwelling places and, and they would kind of camp as a community, as a reminder of how God had been faithful to them, leading them out of Egypt and through the wilderness. And while they were in the wilderness, they were camping along the way. And so that festival begins this week. And I was thinking about how I, I, I labeled or I titled my sermon, Extend Your Tent. And I was thinking this week how Paul was continually trying to extend the tent of faith, extend the tent of salvation, uh, of God's salvation to, to all people that he encountered. And it was a reminder of me that, to me that, that God was the first one. He kind of extended his tent of grace to us. He's the one who constantly pursues uh, extending his grace and forgiveness and mercy to us, even when we don't really deserve it. And in turn, when we become believers, he asks us, he calls us into the work of extending that tent. Just like we had this little hut and we put the big tarp over so that all sorts of people could come underneath that tarp and be dry and have fun and rejoice and, and have a true camping experience without getting soaked. And I think that our text today in Acts chapter 18 helps us see four ways that we can extend our tent. And so what I want to do is just kind of walk us through the first part of chapter 18 and uh, make a few comments along the way. But then really what I want to do is, is take the bulk of our time and talk about four ways that you can extend your tent. So in chapter 18, this is where Paul enters Corinth. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, there are two letters in it to this church that formed in Corinth, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And I think by volume, the church in Corinth is the one that Paul wrote the most number of words to. He had a lot to teach these people. And Corinth was a city that was fairly prominent in, uh, in the Greek culture. But when the Romans took over, they destroyed it in about 146 BC. And for a hundred years, Corinth was basically vacated. It was reduced to ruins 
wasn't, wasn't much of a city at all. Uh, in the Roman Empire, I think it was uh, Julius Caesar had this bright idea that I need kind of a capital city in that part of my empire. And so in 46 to 44 BC, Julius Caesar built up Corinth into this thriving cosmopolitan metropolis that was indoctrinated with the imperial cult, and so they worshiped the emperor as well as the, the uh, Greek and the Roman gods of the time. We talked a little bit about that um, last week. But Corinth was positioned geographically in a very unique spot where it was both a crossroads uh, for land trade, but also Corinth was one city that had two seaports. And so instead of making a very uh, long and dangerous sail down and around a peninsula, um, people in the shipping trade could pull into Corinth and they had this mechanism that you could drag your boat up and over a stretch and then uh, enter back in the water and it cut days out of a journey and it was a much safer journey. So not only was there a crossroads of land, but there was a lot of sea trade that happened through Corinth. And so there was this huge mix of cultures present in Corinth. Corinth was also, um, it was a very worldly city, known for uh, wild and loose living. And Paul enters into this, and if we know, if we remember Paul's journey to this point, he's been beat up a little bit. He... Uh, had been chased around. Uh, riots happened in most, if not all, of the cities where he tried to preach the gospel. Uh, he was put in jail. He was beaten. He was um, abused and uh, physically and verbally. And, and just, he comes to Corinth, having just spent some time in Athens, and I imagine that he's weary I imagine he's worn out, that he's kind of under a lot of distress and maybe not knowing what to expect as he comes into Corinth and is confronted with this culture. And so we arrive in, in chapter 18 in verse 1. Uh, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor of Rome at the time, or the Roman Empire, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So Paul enters town kind of weary and worn out, and he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And they're kind of refugees uh, as well. They have been chased out of their uh, homeland in Rome, and they're kind of on the flee because uh, Claudius uh, um, was, was sending the Jews out of town because th there were um, uprisings and riots and so forth, and it, he just didn't want the Jews around Rome anymore. And, and this is, you can look this up in the history books, and there was a a push to have them leave, and so Aquila and Priscilla are uh, trying to find a new place of residence themselves. They've landed in Corinth, and they've set up this tent-making business, and I just think it's, it's important for us to 
speak out loud that God uses us sometimes when there's a lot of upheaval going on in our lives. Aquila and Priscilla pushed out. Paul, he's been under duress in most of the places that that he goes, and God still uses that. And sometimes he uses those situations in our lives as the very thing that instigates us, motivates us to go out and to enter into his kind of, his work. Aquila and Priscilla, they arrived in this new city, probably in survival mode, but God opened new doors for them. God takes what looks like dead ends for us, but he takes those dead ends and he uses those in ways that become new beginnings. Paul needed companionship. Paul, Paul needed some friends. He, he needed people where he could just have shoulder time and be with. And we learned something here about Paul that he has a trade. He is a tent maker. And so he joins forces with with this husband and wife, and together they they make tents. And tent making was a way of talking about other leather sorts of crafts and, and the like. Then we get to verse 4. So Paul has a day job right now. It's tent making. But every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia... Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So when Silas and Timothy showed up in Corinth and reconnected with Paul, they were coming probably from Philippi, and the Philippian church had uh, collected some financial resources to support Paul and his ministry, and so they come bearing gifts. Not only are these his colleagues and, and friends, but, but they come with financial means. And so we see a shift in the text here where, where Paul is now able to devote all his time to preaching the gospel, and he does that. And here's where it gets a little bit interesting. In verse 6, it Luke continues, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul is now preaching in the synagogue. He's doing it full time. And the people there get a little bit riled up. And it seems like it's unraveling just as it has in the other places where he has been. He starts preaching things that uh, rub them a little bit the wrong way. It's a little bit abrasive to them, and, and so they start uh, abusing him. Uh, the, the word there would be more like they were blaspheming Paul. Now, when we think of the, the word blasphemy, we usually think it in terms of if somebody blasphemes, they're speaking against God. But you, but you in the Greek language, if you were to blaspheme someone, it's any way that you would uh, denigrate or slander or diminish somebody's character. And so they were, not only were they rejecting what Paul was saying, but 
But Luke is telling us that they were rejecting Paul as a person, that they were specifically trying to diminish him in his character. And so Paul, he says, okay, I, I feel like God calls me to start my ministry in, a syn- in the synagogue, wherever I go. I preach the message, the cross, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, feature, I, I preach it first to the Jews wherever I go. And if I'm rejected, then I go to the Gentiles. And so the picture that we have here is uh, Paul shaking out his robe. And it's interesting, you would use the same word to describe if you, were, if you had sat down to a meal and you had a bowl of soup and everybody has saltine crackers once in a while. And if you break a saltine cracker, what happens? There's crumbs everywhere. And so the word there for shake the dust off of your robe would be like you stand up from a meal and you shake out your clothes to get the crumbs off. And so Paul is telling him, okay, just you're, you're like crumbs to me. I'm shaking you out. I, I fulfilled my responsibility to God and I have a clear conscience because I offered you the gospel message and you rejected it and you're rejecting me and so I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles. And so he does that. Then Paul, this is verse 7, then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So... I love this picture here. Paul didn't go very far, did he? So synagogue is over here. They reject him. And so Paul says, that's fine. I'm going to go right next door to a house of somebody who has accepted the message, and I'm going to preach here. And so I can imagine Paul over here, if he had a megaphone in the day, he might have been preaching here, but having the megaphone going this way towards the synagogue. And then in verse 8, we're told that the synagogue leader, Crispus, came to faith. He and his entire household, Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. Well, that's interesting. He had just been rejected over here. And maybe Crispus was kind of already on the way to faith, and maybe the rejection here was what motivated him to say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go with Paul. But Luke tells us that the leader of the synagogue and his entire family come to faith. And they, it's like they switch sides here, and they all go, they all go next door here. But we, right now, are seeing a picture of how Paul understands part of his ministry to be extending the tent of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness to other people. He started over here where he felt called to start. But then they said, no, he he takes this awning, he takes a big tarp and he brings it out over here to this house of the Gentiles. And already we see that he's seeing some fruit in his ministry. He knows that God intended the people of Israel to be the light to the nation, 
to be the ones who are uh, his image bearers in the world, the ones who were to share his good news with all people. But apparently, next door was a little bit too close for comfort for the people over here. And so some conflict and tension arise. Verse 9, it goes on, it says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. I can imagine that upon that rejection, Paul is thinking it's all going to crumble. Everything that started out seemingly well or okay in Corinth, I'm now getting that resistance that I've felt and sensed in other places. It's all just going to come crashing down. It's going to go away. They're going to, they're already insulting me. When are they going to get the whips and rods out and start beating me. And then he gets this word from the Lord in verse 9 and 10. And the first thing that God says is, do not be afraid. You know, Paul's human too. He may be an apostle that we, maybe we put him up on a pedestal once in a while and I would say that I believe Paul would say, I don't want to be up on that pedestal. I'm, I'm just a guy too. But we see here that he's, he's human. He, he's afraid. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, in chapter 2, in verse 3, I think it is, he reminded the Corinthians of how he arrived in Corinth and a little bit of his state of mind and being. He said, I came to you in, in weakness, in great fear and trembling. And God reminds him here, do not be afraid. You can keep talking. You can keep sharing the good news. Don't be silent for I am with you. It's a promise that God had made to many biblical characters, Moses and Joshua and Jeremiah. I am with you. You know, Jesus came. God came to us in Jesus. We call it the incarnation where Jesus became a human to come and, and walk through our mess of a life with us to show us how to do it. It's God's statement in the flesh of I am with you. If you remember when Jesus' ministry, his earthly Time came to a conclusion and he was ascending. He said, um, remember what he said? He said, go into all the world and make disciples. And he reminded them that I will be with you. And we know that the Holy Spirit is present with us always. And even our brother Paul needed that reminder. I am with you. You can persevere. Verse 12, while Gallio was proconsul, 
of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. In other words, they were trying to make the case that Paul was promoting a, re a religion that was not um, recognized by the Roman Empire and, and religions that weren't recognized by Rome were therefore illegal. And so if you promoted them, then you could be brought up on charges. And so the Jewish people are trying to convince the Roman consulate here that this is what Paul was doing and that they should take care of him. They should punish him and and it goes on like this. This is really huge for this early church here. Um, just as Paul was about to speak, so defend himself, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such Things. So he drove them off. What Gallio has just done is he has recognized the Christian movement as an extension of Judaism, lumped them together. Judaism was a recognized faith, a recognized religion uh, in the Roman Empire, and uh, Gallio is now saying that Christianity is also a recognized religion because of a connection here. So this is a huge victory. This is a, what Gallio spoke here would have um, been extended out. And we know things turn and go a little bit south for a while for the Christian church in the Roman Empire. But in Corinth, in this part of the Roman Empire, uh, Gallio has made a, a ruling in favor of the Christian church that you can go out and about and you can preach the message that you're preaching. You can preach Jesus and his death and resurrection and the forgiveness. You can preach all of those things without fear of uh, legal ramifications. It's a pretty big deal. So we learn that Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months and then he sailed for Ephesus and it's interesting to note that Aquila and Priscilla have become so close to him and are partners in ministry that they end up going off and, and sailing with him to practice ministry in other places. So we see this picture of, of Paul starting in the synagogue and knowing that God's call in his life was to share with um, the Jewish people first and, and then to extend that tent out and reach the Gentiles with this message of salvation and he is doing that. And so I think it's a, maybe a, a worthwhile thing for us to talk about some ways where we too can extend our tent. And so the first way that you can extend your tent is that you find your assurance and hope in Jesus Christ. It kind of all starts there. Paul arrived in Corinth a mess, weary, worn out. Um, was he ready to quit? We're not quite certain. But the words of encouragement that Jesus speaks into his life while he's there suggest to me that he was contemplating 
maybe just throwing in the towel. I don't know if it's all worth it. Everywhere I go, I start off and it seems to be okay, but it just turns on me quickly. And the more often that it turns on you and you are under stress like that, the more pressure that, that mounts upon you, sometimes it's just easy to get to that place and say, you know what, this, I'm going to chuck it. It's not worth it. People get to this point in all sorts of places in life. It's called burnout. And there's a difference between being tired and being burnt out. And I've talked about this with you before. My favorite metaphor in thinking about the difference between being tired and being burnt out is this. If you, if you drive your car around town and the little gauge on the inside of your car that says fuel, if the longer you drive your car, the, the fuel gauge just goes down, right? And when it gets to the bottom, either your car quits or you have been wise enough to pull into the gas station and you refuel your car. So in life, if you think about it, if you go through your daily grind, your week, your month, whatever season of life it is, there's a fuel gauge on your life. And, and at the end of every day, you need sleep as part of your recharge. You go uh, for hours at a time during the day and, and you need something called food to help recharge your batteries, to, to refuel you. But if you go long enough under a lot of pressure and anxiety, and in this case, Paul, with, with rejection, and you don't do things to care for yourself, then you reach a point that's called burnout. And it would be like driving your car around for miles upon miles after a little warning light starts flashing at you and it's the oil light. And if you drive your car past the point where oil is gone in the engine, then all the parts start friction and heat. And things, I'm not a mechanical person, but I know that your engine will seize. And when you, when you run your car long enough after the oil light is on, it's not good. And you burn out. And ultimately, uh, you crash. I think Paul was closer to that point of burnt out when he arrived in Corinth. And he needed that reminder from the Lord that, hey, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'll take care of you. Nobody here is going to hurt you. And right alongside those words, there are several significant points of hope, of assurance that the Lord gives him while he's in Corinth. The first one is the blessing of friendship. Aquila and Priscilla. He's able to come alongside them and and they can share in a business together and, and they connect. And, and you need that. He, he could find hope that, hey, there's some community for me here. Silas and Timothy show up and they bring him financial resources from Philippi to take some of the financial pressure off of him. It's a sign of hope. And, and then we see God blessing Paul's efforts synagogue leader and his household come to faith, as well as many others. So there's, there's fruit in his ministry. And when, when, you, when you go after what you feel like God is calling you to and you just keep pursuing it, if you, if you, 
If you don't see fruit, it can be discouraging. And Paul here in Corinth is, he sees the fruits of his labor. God blesses him with that fruit and that, that provides assurance and hope. You see, the rejuvenation that God poured into his life was greater than the weariness. That's how God works. Just in the moments that we need it, he will give you a measure that's more than the weariness that you might be suffering. Sometimes we need to step back and pause and look around to see how he might be giving that to us. Is it, is it through people, the blessing of community, or fruit, or whatever it might be in your own life? So find your assurance and hope in Jesus Christ as your foundation. That's where the extension of your tent starts. You've got to get that right. Number two is immerse and invest yourself in the community of faith. Dive in, participate in the community of believers. Church is what we call it. Be part of the collective of caring and compassionate people who can support you when you're disoriented and discouraged and in distress. When you're weary and worn out, don't retreat and think you can care for yourself on your own. This is the time where you, you go further in. You dive deeper into the pool of the community of Jesus to find your support and things that you need. See, God sends us encouragement in the people that he surrounds us with. I know it's, it requires time. It requires effort. It's messy sometimes. But I think in the end, it's so worth it. How does, what does that look like here? Well, to join a core group or a Bible study or a Sunday school class or, or step forward in some volunteer capacity just to, to, to extend out and to serve, but also to be amongst other people who are doing the same thing that you can journey through this life with and care and support one another. And the ways that you are blessing other people will come back around and return the blessing to you. There's the picture of this in the text, and that's uh, Paul found the refreshment in relationship. They bless, uh, Aquila and Priscilla blessed Paul, and he in turn mentored them in their faith. And we see Aquila and Priscilla going out later in the book of Acts, and, and, and then they start mentoring a, a guy named Apollos. That's how the kingdom of God works. You're mentored so that you can mentor other people. My favorite picture is you have, you have two hands. On, on the one hand, you're, you're grabbing hold of people who can mentor you in your faith and help you get to the next step to, to get over the hurdle that you might be facing. And you may be a Christian for a year. You may have been a Christian for 50 years. Everybody needs a mentor. Somebody who has gone ahead of you in the faith where you can learn from. I have people that I turn to that I would consider mentors in my own life. You're, you never reach a point where you don't need that. So with one hand, I reach out for help. But with the other, I reach out and I look for people who, 
who need to get over a hurdle in their faith. They, they need to get from point A to point B. And God places us together so that we can be mentors to one another. And so you have two hands. One, you're being mentored, and this one here, you're, you're helping other people. And it can be multiple. It doesn't have to be one mentor and one mentor here. You may have capacity to help mentor a whole bunch of people. This week in your core groups, I want you to talk about people who have occupied that place in your life as mentor and what they have meant for you. And if you're not in a core group, then just spend some time thinking about, make, maybe make a list, uh, a prayer list, and, and thank God for all of those people who have helped you through important um, times in your faith, through struggles that you've had. The third thing is to allow God to shape your vision of people. Allow God to shape your vision of people because you can't, you can't extend your tent to other people if you can't see them. You don't need to extend the tent of faith to other people in the church. You extend your tent to people who aren't part of the church yet. We have been, God has entrusted to our care sharing his message with other people. Friends, family, co-workers, people you go to school with, people in our neighborhoods, people in your neighborhood. Th those are the people that we need to ask God peel the scales back from our eyes so we can see people who are in our circle, you know, out in the world, but people who might be beyond our circle. It comes up in Jesus' ministry a couple times. One of the most notorious ones, there was a, a lawyer who came to Jesus and he, he just had all sorts of questions and he wanted to know what he needed to do to, to, to have uh, eternal life. And, you know, they go through a little, this is what you need to do. And, and, and uh, it comes to the point, Jesus says, you got to treat your neighbors like this. And the guy says, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells them this little story. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, Jesus just busts down the wall of how people of that day believed that some were in and some were not. There was like a brick wall all the way around people who could experience the covenant grace and mercy of God. And Jesus said, it's the people on the other side are your neighbor as well. So all of your defined categories, Jesus shatters them. The people who think differently than you, politically, socially, whatever way you, you want to consider that in your own mind, whatever barrier 
you might put up, which is us on one side and them on the other, Jesus will every single time walk right across that barrier and say, these people too. These people too. And we need to put that before God. We need him to expand our vision. Sometimes our dreams and our vision is just way too small because we, we want to do things where we feel like maybe we have a little bit more safety and control over. And every time that happens, Jesus busts down that wall. So let's lay that before the Lord and say, Lord, who do you want us to extend this tent over today? Who, who in my windshield of the day am I to extend the tent over? God will help you see people in a new light because he calls us to extend our tent over people that we might even put in the enemy category. Those where we just naturally have a, maybe an anger mechanism go off in our soul, Jesus says, that person too. I want you to pray for him. You know, when you really pray for somebody, it's really hard to hate them. When you lift them to God and you say, God, I know that you love this person unconditionally, it's really hard to have any kind of anger or hatred rise up in your own soul. We need to ask God for this vision that he has for all people. And the fourth thing is risk enough to need God's help. Risk enough to need God's help. See, God gives us lots of promises in his word. Not so we can sit back and feel good about ourselves, but really as encouragement and strength and confidence to go out and share and serve. We like the passages in Scripture, like Matthew 11, when Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That's a good one, isn't it? We just want, you know, oh, yeah. Give me some of that rest, God. I'm weary and I'm worn out. Will you, will you just take that burden? We love that one. But not too much further in Matthew, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. There are promises and there are times where, yes, you'll give things to God and he will take them and he will rest your weary soul he will bring you back from the precipice of burnout and he will invigorate you and energize you and rejuvenate you and you will be ready and raring to go. And there will be times where he, there are requirements of the Christian faith and that is to go and to serve and to share with other people. And God calls us into circumstances that require us to trust him. we'll run into things and situations that are just way beyond us. Things that we don't know if we can handle. 
things where we feel like the wheels are about to fall off at any point. And I think that's right where God wants us sometimes. Because it's only then, it's only at the times where the wheels are about to fall off where we turn to him and say, well, I can't do this on my own. God, I'm going to need to have your help with this one. Because if, if we're all neat and packed up and everything's going fine, we tend to rely on our own strength, don't we? We tend to fall back on our own plan, our own opinions, our own course of action, and we think all is good because I'm strong enough, I can do this on my own, and, and God wants to push us right, right to the edge. He pushes us right to his throne because there are situations that he wants us to be in where we can't do anything but turn to him so that we rely on him and not ourselves. So risk enough to need God's help. Where, where are you stepping out? Where, where are you taking a leap of faith? Where are you in situations where it causes you to say to God, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to work unless you provide a way, Lord. And that scares me, but I'm trusting you. Times where you say, Lord, I, I don't know, I don't really know where to start sharing my faith at work, but I'm trusting you and I'm, I'm willing to put myself out there. It scares me, but I'm in. I need you to show me what that looks like. God calls all of us into situations that require him and our faith and our trust that he will lead and guide and give us the words in the moment. That God accomplishes his plan through all of us. I mean, regular, ordinary, everyday people, everyday situations plan for us is that we would go out and make disciples, that we would extend that tent of faith to other people. Isaiah talked about it. Isaiah 54.2 says, enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left. May that be said of all of us and of this church. The people of God said, Amen. Amen.